Uh, welcome back, everyone, to another Sporting Blog podcast. Uh, we've had a really busy month uh, with the Euros and uh, Test cricket, and now the tennis season getting underway. So there's guests coming thick and fast over the next couple of weeks. Um, not, you know, aside from the fact that uh, in my normal life I'm launching a new sporting league, which is fairly stressful. Um, but let's get away from the stress of the day-to-day. And I think one way of doing that is generally finding yourself a good book and sitting back and relaxing and getting into some interesting sporting action. Really pleased to be joined by David McLennan and maybe Chris Schumann uh, and our rugby writer, Daniel Cullinan, to discuss a new book that was put our way called Lions in Africa, which is the story of the British and Irish Lions and the hunt for the Springboks. David and Daniel, welcome. How are you both? Can't complain. Hello, Ollie. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks uh, for getting me on yeah. here. So, That's all right, Daniel. Did you watch uh, England play last night? I saw some of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, got the result in the end. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good performance. I thought. Yeah, a fairly forgettable tournament so far for England, but at least they are, <laughs> at least they are through. Uh, David luckily doesn't have to worry about such stresses. Um, <laughs> David, so the book. The book came our way through the publisher and uh, it's one of these sort of books that once you, you start getting into it, you, you find yourself kind of wanting to know more because I think for most of us, the sort of lay rugby fans, we don't quite realise how much heritage and history there there, there is in, in the Lions touring to Africa. Let's just as a kind of an overview, what, what made you guys want to sit down and, and write this book? Um, we've written two previous rugby books together. We wrote a history of Newlands rugby ground, but it, it, it was a rugby book, but it was, um, we looked at the sort of environment of the 50 tests that had been played at the ground. So we dealt with the game, but we also dealt with the background, the lead up to it, the events off the field. And we sort of put it into the social fabric of South Africa. And we did the same again for the an, on Ellis Park. And you know, South African rugby is controversial, always has been in a way. Um, so the initial games, it was quite simple. It was, you know, mainly tours from England and you know, the home, the home countries. But then as the as apartheid grew, rugby became more and more in the sort of eye of the storm, so to speak. So we deal with, uh, you know, some of the games. I'll give you one example. When the All Blacks played at Newlands in 1976, in the run-up to that game, I mean, there was a, a week of rioting literally across the Cape. And it was, so rugby had, in a sense, caused division in, in our society. So we addressed that. And then we, and then we you know, went on and, and addressed things once they'd, Mr. Mandela had been released from prison. And, and of course, a lot of the games were in that period because during apartheid, there were relatively few games. So we wrote those two books. And in the writing of that, we obviously dealt with some of the Lions tours. And, you know, when we thought about the, the team coming out now, we, um, we thought, well, let's put it all together. So from the very first game, which was the first time that South Africa played an international in 1891 through until 2009, when, uh, you know, it, it, 
the first game, I think there were 6,000 people, 4,000 people. So certainly some of the, in that first tour, there were, you know, some of the games were only watched by hundreds of people, whereas mm. obviously now it's a, it's a massive thing. And for those that haven't read the book, uh, as you mentioned, 1891, the uh, first South African international team, this was very much a British Isles tour. It wasn't the brand that we know today as the Lions. Um, how did that first tour come about? It's an interesting question because I think part of it is there was beginning to be changes in rugby in, in England between rugby league and the rugby union. And Roland Hill, who was in charge of the kind of, and was a, a diehard amateur, I think used the tours to improve, to kind of increase the visibility of, of, of rugby union. Um, and they proposed this tour. There had already been a sort of tour to New Zealand and Australia, but it had been, he seemed to suspect that there was a bit of payments involved. And so he said, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to do it the amateur way and the South Africans were, which was basically the, 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 the rugby union in Cape Town said that they would go with it. Um, and then it seems like Cecil Rhodes sort of gave his backing and he said, I mean, obviously now he's a very controversial man at that time. There's, there was, I think it was pretty generally accepted. He was the wealthiest man in the world. So he could afford. So he said, "Look, if there's any shortfall, we'll you'll pick the you'll pick up the bill." Mm. And so they they went, and that initial tour was very successful. And from then, tours began to proliferate. What sort of game was rugby union in South Africa in that period of time in in the 19th century? I mean, are we talking a you know a predominantly middle class game? Uh, was it a, a sort of a, if you like, uh, a sort of hobby game for for expats, or or was it something that was already starting to weave into South African society? I think it was it was primarily at that stage a game for expats. There was a, you know, there was a large British military presence. Um, so the eighteen ninety one. Tour. I write about that, and I uh, and I write. You know, the tour was made rugby popular in South Africa. It's in, and then it was followed in 1896. Both of those tours were well attended, were popular, and and it helped spread the rugby sort of message into the interior. And in the majority of people who were playing rugby were uh, in the interior were Dutch or Afrikaans speaking. And so you, you get this expansion into, so by the time the Boer War comes along, there's quite a lot of evidence of, of, of Dutch people, of Afrikaans people playing, playing rugby. Um, and just after the Boer War, when Mark Morrison's team come out again, that was the third um, team from the British Isles. Um, you know, you notice a lot of the teams are their Afrikaans names, and you begin to get that sort of um, sort of half and half English 
you're still getting people from Yorkshire and, you know, who born in the Southern England who are playing, um, you know, in 1903, South Africa's captain was a, was a Scot. Uh, you know, he, he, he lived all his life in Scotland. So it's, it's, not, it's not a clear-cut thing. Well, what I found uh, quite fascinating, um, the, those first two or three tours, was the fact that South Africa probably weren't actually picking their strongest side because geographically yeah. they could only pick players yeah. where the tests were being played. Um, and I, th I think it, it says a lot, really, because by the, I think it was the fourth tour, when that was happening, um, well, like you say in the book, it, it was another six decades before the Lions actually won out in South Africa. Yeah. Because it was almost as if um, they'd got their rap together. And from that point on, um, well, it was, a, it was a much harder task for the Lions to actually go out there and win. Well, Daniel, you're spot on. I mean, it's something that I, I mean, I really, in a sense, I struggled with it because here you've got essentially four separate countries. You've got the Cape and Natal, which are colonies, but separate colonies, you know, not, not at all together. In fact, they opposed each other on certain legislation. And then you've got two Boer republics who are vehemently opposed to, to England. And in fact, I write about it, you know, uh, the, the English government basically annexed the Boer Republic. Uh, Theophilus Shepston arrived in Pretoria and simply took down their flag and, and raised the, the Union Jack. And that led to the, the Battle of Majuba. And yet here you have a rugby team in 1891, because they went to Kruger and they said, can these guys come and play in Joburg? And he said, that's fine. You know, it's, 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 it's a real, I, I, I can't really explain it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I know that, the, you know, obviously, and you might say, well, oh, it's okay because the people playing in Johannesburg were all, you know, expats or people who'd been born in the Cape who spoke English, but it, it, they weren't, they were Afrikaners. They were playing. So, you know, they literally could have served in Kruger's commandos and then gone and played and had a drink with, you know, guys from Cambridge and Oxford University afterwards. I, I mean, it's... So that's the great thing about rugby, isn't it? Absolutely. I, you know, and it's, in a sense, it's, you know, and it's, I mean, we didn't write about it in this book, but in, in 1906-07, Paul Roos leads a team. And then again in 1910, uh, 1912 and 13, Billy Miller's Springboks, the first and the second box, as we call them, matured. And in both cases, you've got this diverse group, you know, people who were, uh, I mean, you know, in the 1912 side, Max Honnett, who was the manager, had been, had been captured by the Boers. He was a prisoner of war. You, you know, you've got a, you, and, and then in the same side, you've got um, a guy called, ironically, his, his surname is Mac Hardy, but I mean, his brothers were, one was a prisoner of war in Bermuda, and the other one was a prisoner of war in a camp. So, you know, our rugby, and, and now we are facing, you know, Rassi Erasmus had it easy in the World Cup in Japan because it's always easier to pick a South African side offshore. It's harder to pick here because yeah. you've got all sorts of levels of, you know, I I mean, for, look, I, I think Sia Kulisi, he, he's going to, he, his position is secure. He's, he's been playing well. But it's hard to 
drop some of the players, you know, when you're playing at Ellis Park to drop a golden line and when you're playing at Newlands or not anymore, regretfully, in the Western Province, you know, we have a lot of fault lines in our rugby and those fault lines started in 1891, essentially. What's really fascinating, I mean, you guys, sorry, Daniel, you guys are, are, are I mean, the, the research that must have gone into this is, is, is mind-boggling because yeah. not only... Not only are you managing to get most of the players' names and, in some cases, their backgrounds, but the details that you put in about some of the games is unbelievable. They're match reports, aren't they? Yeah, so I mean, but these are match reports yeah. from over 100 years ago, <laughs> um, painted, in, painted in Technicolor. Just tell me, David, just as a kind of a side point, I'm just looking at the book in front of me now and I can see the 1896 touring party, for example, is exclusively made up of uh, players from England and Ireland. Um, yeah. No, no Scots uh, and maybe no Welsh. Um, what, do you do you have a reason for that, um, or is that um, just not as uh, were they just not as good back in the day? You know, there was there was some tension between um, England and Scotland over that game where. Uh, now, I forget the date, regretfully, but there was a, a try scored that the Scots thought was good and the, and the English, uh, sorry, the Scots uh, thought it was bad and the English, it was played at, in England. So there, there was a dispute over that. So there, there, were, um, there were divisions um, in the home nations. I'm not exactly certain why you know, the initial tour was more Scottish and English. The second one was more Irish. It was possibly, it, it was just as South African teams were, were basically chosen fairly casually. I think that the Lions team, it was kind of a, almost I would say a gentleman's agreement. You know, there was mm. certainly the early one, the early, the first tour, there was a lot of people from Oxford and Cambridge. You know, it was a kind of, I think that was Roland Hill's, influence it was it was a game it was you know gentlemen were expected to play it you you paint such a a colorful picture of some of these these characters as well and i think kind of reading through the book that's that's what sticks out to me and i think it's very easy in sport to to look back you know and see statistics and results and not really yeah. understand the characters from the time but you know I, I'm sure it was a great adventure for these guys from England and Ireland in 1896 to come over. Do you do you have any kind of feeling as to what that sort of journey would have would have consisted of? What it would have looked like? Where they would have stayed? That sort of thing. I, 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 to be honest, I think they must have been quite tough. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, the, the transport in South Africa. Um, I, I give that, I found that wonderful quote from Mark Morrison, who seems to have been quite a direct, though he captain, he was a Scot and he captained the 1903 side. And when he returns to Southampton, they say to him, you know, what was South Africa like? And his comment is, well, he has heard rumors that it was the last country to be made by God and it's still being made, you know. <laughs> I, I, so to answer your question, firstly, they had to travel for, 16 days on quite a small vessel. So they, and they, you know, they seem to have eaten quite well. So they arrive pretty out of sorts. They, they land and they are fated. The 
people of Cape Town just love them and they treat them really well. They are wined and dined. And I, I comment on this, you know, this is a kind of welcome. I mean, your the lions now are going to get treated in the same way. You know, they they are they are celebrities in this country. And the interesting thing is that they were celebrities in 1891. And I didn't realize that, you know, they were, uh, you couldn't, uh, they couldn't move without being followed. They, they were sick, people, they had to sign, they, people took photos of them. Obviously those, those days it was a more complicated process, but, um, but I think the main thing was they traveled very slowly. So, even, I'm just trying to think, I think it was the 1924 team, no, the 1910 team, they couldn't even dry their rugby jerseys because they would play a game and then get on the train and have to, you know, they would literally spend, let's say they played a game in Kimberley, the next morning they'd get on the train and have to go to Johannesburg or to, uh, in those days, Salisbury, now Harare. Uh, you know, they really struggled with, that sort of thing. And then, of course, there was the, the fields, which were very hard. Some of them were very dusty. Um, and, you know, the worst of all, the most notorious of all was Kimberley, where, and I wrote, I got some nice quotes about that, you know, where the, the one English journalist, he sarcastically said he, he found at least three blades of grass on, on the field. Uh, so it must have been quite a shock to, to play like that. They were quite attritional tours, weren't they, really? Um, they were away for months and playing well over 20 matches as well. Absolutely. Um, and whoever was on that ship, that was it. Um, yeah, the yeah. Lions going out there now, if, if they pick up an injury, there's somebody on standby who can be there within hours. But uh, I remember um, from one of the one of the tours that um, they, I think they just managed to scratch 15 players together in the end because yeah. they just picked up some awful injuries along the way. Um so they must have been pretty tough guys to be to doing that tour. I know they were well looked after, but uh, it must have been quite a slog. Well, I think I, this is that you know this you know reminds me of you know the, the cricket tours in, in in you know 70, 80 years ago. I mean, you were literally away for months. I mean, today on on social media, Michael Michael Vaughan saying that if families aren't allowed in Australia for the Ashes, then the Ashes should be should be tinned off. And uh, maybe he's right. Who knows? The, the world has changed a lot, but. Uh, when you, can you imagine, you know, back then, I expect for the for the lads playing, it was a great adventure too. I mean, there was uh, there's no yeah. small part of that. Um, now, the last time I was in Cape Town, ironically enough, I stayed at the Cullinan Hotel uh, yeah. in, in the Cape, which uh, I think was probably there. It was one of, Is that one of the older hotels in uh, Cape Town, David? Uh, no, the, the Mount Nelson is, I think, the oldest that is still, yeah. Would, would the players have been kind of put up in, in sort of regal splendour or were they kind of bunking in people's houses and, you know, sharing rooms? Was it, you know, was, was it, just maybe for our listeners, maybe because obviously now the Lions is, is a massive commercial organisation that has plenty of money. How would they have funded these sort of trips and, and, and would their sort of lodgings as such would have been befitting of such a budget or was there no budget to speak of? Um, well, the... The, the budget, when the unions decided to have the tours, they basically offered the games to different unions around South Africa, and they would make a contribution. I think that the, the answer is both a simple and a complicated one, because, for example, in Kimberley, 
there would have only been probably one hotel in 1891. It, you know, they, they quite often stayed with um, local families. And so I, you know, one, the, 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 the welcome would have been very different for, for some people. Um, you know, I know, but in most places, I think accommodation would have been quite humble. They referred to the dinners that they ate after the matches seemed to have been well catered for, you know. So uh, I think to answer your question, I think the, the traveling arrangements would have been very harsh, long times in the train. These stagecoaches, I write about the one where it breaks down, they leave Johannesburg, it breaks down in the middle of the free state. I mean, even today, you would not want to spend a night on the side of a road, you know, and, and they sort of would, you know, they thought there might be lines in the area. I mean, there weren't going to be any lines, but it, it, you know, it couldn't have been fun to spend your night sitting on the ground in the middle of the Karoo. Well, but... in, 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 <laughs> in, that, in that period of time when uh, you probably, most of them probably had never left England or Ireland, let alone gone to Africa, the whole thing yeah. would have been quite mind-boggling and, yeah. yeah, pretty scary, I imagine. Um, David, as, uh, sorry, Daniel, as a, uh, as a diehard rugby fan, when, when you look at the, the upcoming Lions tour with all the pomp and circumstance and the kind of ultra-minute detail that, that's covered... How did you feel when you were reading about some of these older tours? Did it kind of make you long for the sort of amateur, you know, days of, of rugby? Or do you kind of think that, well, the game has moved to such an elite level, but, you know, that's kind of preferable? Yeah, I think um, I think they were just so unique, those tours, and, and just so unbelievably tough for them. Um, and I imagine there were some real characters amongst those, those groups of players that headed down there. Um, and it was quite a big ask for them, I think, to go and win a test series. Um, and really, they uh, they were, they established how tours are run now, really. They they were the ones who went there and discovered that there's, you know, a lot of difference between playing on the coast and at altitude and um, the grounds and, and what uh, a rugby nation Africa has become. Um, I was looking, I was watching a video um, of the current lines in Jersey where they're training. And they were doing their altitude training on their bikes and they're, everything, they're just catered for everything. They think of everything. Um, and But if it wasn't for those tools from the early times, you know, a lot of what we know now, that they've built on all those, those tools. And where we are now is um, because of that. Um, I agree absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting to me, you know, the, the, the route that the 1891 tour and the 1896 tour follow was essentially followed, you know, right up until, well, you can say, well, you know, that's uh, where South Africans play rugby in Johannesburg, in Durban, whatever. But the, the kind of the tour, the, the way that they toured, you know, going up onto the high felt, then going down to the coast, then going back onto the high felt and ending up in Cape Town. I mean, they were still doing those tours uh, you, you know, the only difference was when Willie John McBride came out in 74, they started, they started the tour in, in Cape Town. You know, normally they ended in, in Cape Town. Um, so, yeah, they did set um, Steve Lewis in his wonderful book on the, the 1938 line, Sam Walker's team. He gives a graph of, of showing the altitudes, you know, because by then, 
uh, I think these initial tours, it was just by kind of, they just sent them. But by 1938, the South African Rugby Union uh, began to realize, you know, it made life very difficult for tourists. So they would deliberately send them exactly as you say, they'd send them down to Durban where they could go and swim in the sea because, you know, even in midwinter, it's nice and warm. And then bang, you put them on a train and you send them to Joburg where it's freezing cold, 6,000 feet, and they struggle, you know. And so we, and it's interesting to me in the run-up to, to these, to the, the, the present visit, there was even a lot of negotiations around where those tests would be played because the Lions management are very aware of what's, yeah. you know, what, what would suit them. I mean, they don't want to play down on the coast and then zoom up to a Joburg while the Springboks are all sitting up in Joburg acclimatising, you know. I think that's probably one of the one of the things that probably makes a Lions tour to South Africa special is because you just they, they must just know it's not going to be easy at all and it will be made as difficult as possible. Um, and that's probably, <laughs> it's probably why the Lions have got the sort of winning record that they have in South Africa. I mean, it's not, not a place to go, not an easy place to go and win. So, David, you, you did mention that Chris, who didn't manage to, to join us, wrote the kind of second half of the book, if you like, which focuses more on the modern era. But, yeah. it, it's, of course, it's worth pointing out to anyone who's a bit younger listening that, you know, even in this country, rugby wasn't professional until, you know, the mid-late 90s. Um, just, uh, I mean, without putting too much colour on it, but, it, it, you know, moving away from the kind of very early days, moving into the, the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, these are all still amateurs. Um, how and what would the, I mean, we kind of know some of the, the characters from the British and Irish Lions just because they're kind of etched in our folklore. What sort of people were playing for the South African international team at this time? I mean, were these your sort of doctors and lawyers, uh, et cetera, still fairly middle-class or, or was in that period, was the kind of South Africa team starting to be made up of, of sort of more, if you like, locals and that sort of thing? I, I think it's a good question. The early teams, I try to show that. They tended to be farmers, tend to be um, miners, a lot of miners. Um, by sort of 1955, you're beginning to get clerical workers. Now, I'm talking about representing South Africa. Um, and then starting in the 70s, all of a sudden, a large number of the players are students. So, you know, there, there was influence there from Donny Craven because he ran the Stellenbosch University team. And so, you know, the universities became very strong. Um, there was also, you know, there were less miners, less but still some farmers, some policemen, you know, but certainly going into the 70s, I think some people would suggest that that's why South African rugby in that sort of transition period in the 70s and 80s kind of weakened in a sense because we had lost our natural advantage. I mean, these lions in the game in, I think it was 1896, I write about it, the, the wing who was going to play for Griqualand West blew his thumb off in a in a in a mining accident on the Friday, so he couldn't he couldn't play on the Saturday. Uh, no you know, commitment. right up until <laughs> yeah. right up until the 1930s, 
the South African sides were being were being filled by people who were doing pretty hard labor, whereas I suspect, I mean, we'd have to analyze it, but I, I think a lot of the Lions would be like the early guys. They would be graduates from good universities. Uh, look, it's, a, it's I'm generalizing. Um, I just think, you know, in Henny Miller, who was an absolutely brilliant um, player in the 50s, and there's a book on him. He's called Die Vintont. You know, he was a, it was a nickname. Yeah, there is a photograph in that book of this massive man. He is, he is built, he's like a triangle, you know, with these massive shoulders, quite a narrow waist, incredibly powerful. And I met his widow. And she said to me, I mean, he worked five and a half days a, a week in a mine. Uh, and, 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 you know, there, there wasn't much mechanization then. So in a sense, playing rugby on a Saturday afternoon, you know, it was actually softer work than, than drilling, using a drill for, for gold. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it is a feature. It's fascinating. Uh, I mean, that, it is fascinating when, when you consider that, obviously, the, the physical attributes needed to be a decent rugby player. I mean, you only have to look at, not even going back that far, but if you look at, you know, I, I often like kind of find myself going down a YouTube rabbit hole and watching sort of England rugby highlights from the, the, the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, you can tell the difference between the, the kind of working professionals, the lawyers and the doctors, uh, as opposed to, you know, what we have this sort of caricature of a sort of West Country farmer that plays loose head. And, you know, you can you can sort of see the, the differences in, in, in the, you know, well, typically the backs and the forwards, you know, in that kind of... Yeah old-fashioned way but I, I can imagine in South Africa it was it was it was even more noticeable um do you think that do you think that some of that you know because now the South Africans have been known you know for the last 20 years to be extremely physical I mean I, every rugby team is physical but you know whenever we play South Africa there's always this extra level of physicality and was that always present do you think uh, and you know through through these Lions tours? Was it always kind of a head-to-head -head or was that something that's relatively modern? It's intriguing because the early tours, certainly the 1891, even 1903, and even Paul Roos's tours to England in 1906-07, our forwards were, were battered, to be honest. Um, but starting with Billy Miller's uh, team that toured in 1912-13, his forwards were very tough and very strong. And I don't know whether it's them or whether it's just a gradual growth in the size of people who live here, who play rugby. Um, but by the 50s, you know, South Africa's, our even poor Springbok sides expect to scrum hard. You know, they... It, it, it became increasingly important. I, I can't kind of give you a, 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 you know, a specific date or time, um, but I'm trying to think one of the tours in the 60s or the 70s, that guy, it wasn't the British Lions, I think it was one of the, the Australian tours. They said, you know, every team they came up against had tall men in it. So, you know, even your fairly humble backwater teams still had big men. So I think that there's an aspect of that. And, and I think that's, that's kind of fed upon now. I mean, quite often Springboks 
uh, forwards are are not as heavy as the people who oppose us. It's always intriguing to me when you actually look at the pack weights. You know, they tend to give them at the first scrum, and quite often we are outweighed. But we obviously have technique and belief. I don't know. It's it's not an easy question to answer. I think I think it's part of the challenge that Saracens love about their rugby is the the physicality of it and, and fronting up really and taking the opposition on. I think England are pretty similar to that in that way and the All Blacks as well. Um, it's just the ultimate part of the game, really. The forwards have got to be get on top and uh, dominate the opposition, and I think Sarah really thrives on that. Um, and they've got a lot of history. I, I think I think we do thrive. Um, sorry, I'm just. Sorry, I'm just, uh, I've got a courier coming to just fetch two passes, if you don't mind. Because beers are made up through miles down. Okay. This is the modern, uh, the modern era of people constantly at the door. And I remember the times when you'd be excited when the postman brought a parcel. Now there's kind of <laughs> seven or eight parcels arriving every day. And it's quite normal. Um, talking of parcels, um, David, this, uh, we've, we've obviously been sent the book in advance, Daniel and myself, by the publisher. So we've got it on on screen. Um, when When's it coming out for people to be able to, to grab a copy? Um, the date that we have is uh, is only in, in early August, Ollie. I'm, I'm not 100% certain of the actual, you know, whether that's a conservative date. Sure. The, 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 uh, a person, a local publisher bought the rights in South Africa to the book from Amberley, and and that is available in South Africa at the moment. But it's the same; it's the same book, just a it's a paperback as distinct from a from a hardback. I know Daniel's got a couple of questions, but just just before that, um, yeah. I just you know, the two of you writing this, just you know, kind of getting away from the sporting aspect. How hard is it to co-author a book? You have to you have to get on very well with your co-author. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, you know, Chris and I have, you know, I, I would, you know, the, the same viewpoint, I guess. Um, and we did the, the two previous books. In a sense, we, we're writing separate books. You know, I, I, as I said, dealt with 1891 to 1938 and Chris with the modern era. So, you know, look, we, 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 we would meet once a week. Uh, we would, you know, just make sure where we were going. In a sense, though, there is a slight difference of, in a way, it's it's slightly forced because the games that I write about, you know, some of the games are zero, zero draws. You know, they're, they're, they're very, there's, there's not a lot of scoring happening in those days. There was a lot of, um, you know, dribbling of the ball and whereas in Chris's games, there's some quite big scores. So uh, it is, in a sense, it's it is two books, but as one. But then I think if you looked at the history of the Lions, you would say, well, it's a it's a very different game. You know, Willie John McBride's team played a very different game to the to the team in eighteen ninety one. Yeah. Um, well, D Daniel has written a few articles for our our website, and uh, Willie John McBride has appeared large in a couple of them as, as, as a major character. Daniel, have you got any specific questions for David before we move on? Yeah, um, obviously the Lions, they tour Australia and New Zealand as well. And I think they've actually toured Argentina in the past. But yeah. 
South Africa is, I, I don't know, I don't know why, but it's, it's just a bit different. Why do you think that is? It's, it's, I remember watching the uh, 97 tour um, and uh, that sort of captivated me really for the, I, I'd seen the 89 in Australia and 93 in New Zealand, but the 97 tour really sort of, sort of took, took hold of me as, as a Lions fan. Um, what, what do you think it is that's so special about the Lions in South Africa? What, what makes it so special? Is it the history or? Well, I think it, I think it is the history. I think there's, um, it's not so much now because thank God we've, Mr. Mandela walked out of prison and changed South Africa in, a, in an amazing way. But certainly, um, as as sort of Africana nationalism grew in the 30s and led to the victory of the National Party in 1948, rugby became seen as a method of kind of, in a sense, expressing your politics. And, you know, the Scots and the Welsh were kind of viewed slightly differently and not, you know, in a, in a sense, I'm not quite certain why, maybe because of, but certainly the English tours and the Lions tours were, were viewed very much as a kind of chance for retribution for two very violent wars, you know. And then there's also, I think from your side, if I may say, I mean, I'm, it's maybe not true, but, you know, some of these tours were quite exotic. I mean, you know, there were games played in, you know, they would go to the Victoria Falls, they would go, they played games in places that I suspect, I mean, I write about it, you know, one of the Lions games was played in Burgersdorf, which I mean is in the Eastern Cape, even today. I mean, I don't want to be rude to people listening who come from Burgersdorf, but I mean, this is really the end of the world. You know, and to play that in, in 1896 or whenever it was, um, wow. I mean, I doubt there were 100 rugby players in the district. So Ultimate challenge. Uh, yeah. And so I think there is a sort of, there's, there's ex, it's, it's an exotic location. You know, people collect the programs and that's one of our, you know, we sell rare books. We also sell, you know, pro, rugby programs. And I mean, some of these programs, which I suspect when the Lions toured to, you know, Australia, even the sort of out of the way games were still in quite civilized places. You know, some of our, these programs are literally, they're just one little page. It's, you know, if you find them, it's, it pays for your, your next ticket to Los Angeles because they're so valuable. So there's, I think, that, and then of course, some of the programs were entirely in Afrikaans. They, you know, they only, they, you know, they, the, the Lions must have picked up some of those early prone looks and they wondered who was playing, except when they saw their names, you know, they wouldn't have understood. And I don't think that would have happened in Australia or New Zealand. So I, I, yeah. I think, Daniel, to your, to your point and to your question, you know, as, as an England fan, first and foremost, uh, across all sports, we kind of, we play Australia in things quite a lot. You know, we mm. play them in cricket, obviously. We play them in rugby league. We play them in rugby union. quite. But, you know, we don't play South Africa that often in other sports. You know, hardly ever, in fact. And, you know, South Africa had once a very good tennis player, Wayne Ferreira, who, you know, you might see once a year at Wimbledon. Apart from that, there's a little bit of mystery about 
South African athletes. And I think that when when the Lions do descend, you know, it's a chance for 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 people at home to to see South Africa. I mean, I'm not being funny. South Africa winning the, the the Rugby World Cup, you know, beating a very 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 poor England side in the final. God, they played badly. Um, was was actually a great moment for for neutrals watching because you kind of there's something about the jersey. There's something about the the mythology of it. I mean, of course, you've got the All Blacks. You know, kind of the 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 ultimate mythology. But you know, they're kind of their mythology comes through excellence and excellence alone. And I think that when we play South Africa at anything, there's this kind of unknown. Are they going to be yeah. good? Are we going to be good? I, you know, and, and because it doesn't happen that often, uh, it's kind of extra special. Look, it's not, it's not only the unknown. I mean, when, when we go into a, a game, we're never quite certain of what you're gonna get. how it's going to work out. Yeah. I, I, I think part of the elation in South Africa when we won in Japan was, to be quite honest, was amazement. It was there was a, there was a quality. It was like a fairy tale. Well, I have to say, and you know, this is no disrespect, but I think going into the tournament, no, no one had really talked up yeah. South Africa as, as potential yeah. winners. Yeah. Um, but they they emerged through the tournament, and all of a sudden, you're thinking, well, I don't really want to play them, like not <laughs> at all. Especially yeah. at scrum half, you know he's bloody good, and but I think Daniel, I, that's it. It's that it's it's there's a little bit of mystery about it. Uh, I think uh, going into this Lions tour, I think that that mystery is still there because um, South Africa haven't played together for over a year. Uh, wow. I know they've got two tests against Georgia um, before they they take on the Lions, but um, yeah, it's a bit of an un unknown about that as well. But. Uh, I've no doubt they'll be physical. And uh, have you got a prediction, David, for how this is this one's going to go? Put him on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have to agree. I mean, it's been our preparation has not been ideal. Having said that, a lot of our players play in Europe or in the UK, as yeah. you know. So, you know, there's no question that they will be fit. Um, when I, you know, I, when I said about the fairy tale, I, if Rossi Erasmus is listening, he will not be impressed because, you know, one could see the planning that went into it. And I am absolutely certain that, that they would be doing the same now. Um, I mean, under any circumstances to beat the Lions is difficult. But I think under the present circumstances, it's going to be very difficult. So, would you say? I mean, this is probably more one for Daniel, I guess. Um, as you know, I'm a rugby fan, but not what you call a diehard. I don't, I don't follow every sort of kick and 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 line out. But would you say this Lions team on paper is one of the weaker ones? I mean, I only ask this because I think the Six Nations was pretty weak. Um, you know, England are, are probably as as bad as they they've been for a while. The Scotland team, you know, improving. Uh, Wales, obviously, sort of winning kind of almost by default. Um, and Ireland, I guess, you know, a few of their major stars are either on the wane um, or maybe not at the peak of their powers. What do you think about the sort of squad? Um, I think I, I understand it. I mean, I, I think some people would question the amount of England players that are in there um, after their tournament. However, they've got a number of players who are proven Lions and have performed for Warren Gatland before. Um, 
I think like the early tours, the, the starting team, the ones running out against Japan this Saturday, will be a lot different to the team in the third test. Um, I think I think they'll I think there'll be a good showing from them. Um, I think it's going to be a hell of a tough tour for them again, as well as, as it always is in South Africa. Um, but yeah, I, I think they'll do okay. I think it's, it's quite a strong squad. It's quite a different squad. A lot of Scotland players in it this time. They're on merit as well. Um, they've, they've, they've had some fine players in the, the Six Nations this year. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's a good good squad to put together, and they'll they'll go out there and front up. I think I'm just happy that uh, the tour's going ahead in it at, at all, really. Yeah. yeah, and we can be thankful of that. The last time I was in Cape Town uh, was in February last year, and uh, I was at the International Horse Racing Conference, and we were sitting around by the pool, and uh, it was beautiful. And we were kind of laughing and joking about the fact that some of the guys from Hong Kong couldn't make it because they had this cold. And, right. you know, uh, well, yeah, because, you yeah. know what, everyone was blasé. We had people flying in from 60 or 70 countries into Cape Town at the time under, you know, and there was this notion of a coronavirus, but probably, you know, in our minds was the same as SARS and bird flu. One of these things will burn out and it's miles away. And little did we know that three weeks after being in Cape Town, you know, uh, we were pretty much locked down and, and have been largely ever since. But just on that note, David, what's life been like for you in lockdown? Well, we've, you, you know, it's it's obviously been as tough, you know, we had a hard lockdown in April last year where we basically had to stay at home. But after that, we've, things have, have loosened, have loosened up. There is concern right now. And, you know, the, the third wave that we are facing is very dominant in Gauteng and they, the Lions are set to play Quite a lot of games there so it's it's worrying i mean in this morning's news they're talking about um mr ramaposa having to possibly impose you know what would be provincial lockdowns which i mean it's it's quite worrying uh you know i'm sure that the lions management and the side rugby union have thought of this and have worked through it but i you know look it's been a it's been a tough year. We, we're fortunate, as as you listened when the courier came in. We we do a lot of posting, so our customers are are all over South Africa, and we do send few books overseas. So personally, it hasn't been but as dramatic. But you know, the restaurants around the corner from me have had a a torrid time, and I'm sure that's the same for you know England. I know it is. But the third wave here is is definitely on us, so that's a worry. Yeah, yeah, and I think these these waves are going to come, aren't they? Um, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to stop easily. No. Um, look, guys, it's been wonderful to chat. I could probably sit and chat about this all day because it's such an interesting topic. And I do urge any rugby fans listening, um, we will we will publish links as to where you can buy the book as soon as we get the nod from the publisher that it's. Thank out you. and available um but i, I it, it has been an excellent read and i, I think the, the kind of chronological nature of it really takes you on a bit of a journey as, as to how rugby's changed a little bit too and um for a for a general sports fan it, it makes for very easy reading and um it's just amazing the amount of detail you go into honestly um, uh, that you know really stands out for me and um 
you know, it would be very easy to kind of gloss over some of the details that you've, that you've managed to, to fill in. So well done to you both on that. And maybe, um, maybe after this Lions tour is finished and when the book's out, we can get you and hopefully Chris back on again to have a debrief and see, uh, see how badly we got beaten. <laughs> that might apply to us. <laughs> well, that's why I said the royal we, you know. <laughs> um, look, David, thanks very much. Daniel, thanks for coming on. Um, I'll try and get this podcast out in the next few days. I'll let you both know when that's out. Um, to any of our listeners, uh, enjoy the rest of the European Championships. Enjoy Wimbledon and, uh, of course, Racing League that launches on July 29th. So uh, thanks very much and see you guys next time. Pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks, David.